weeks here looking at happiness and being wise about what it is that we look at. Not titled today's message. I, I couldn't come up with one or the other title, so you get two titles. Happiness on the leash of wisdom or rescuing happy from stupid. Some, see, some of you like just edgy stuff, right? You know, so that second one works for you. But let's, let's read in Psalm 73. We'll look at bits and pieces of it together. Verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now skip down to verse 10. We'll come back to some of this in a moment. Verse 9. These arrogant folks, he said, they, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say... How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Down in verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Look in verse 21. My soul was embittered when I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Lord, these are words that you have recorded as the Psalms faithfully do from the realities of our lives. This is how life feels sometimes. It's not just true for this psalmist, it is true for us as well. So Lord, would you help us this morning? Would help us to experience your word and not just to hear words in Jesus' name. Amen. John Calvin, in his commentary on this psalm, spoke of the psalmist. Now, Calvin, like others, uh, although your, your psalm says a psalm of Asaph, uh, Calvin, like many other commentators, believed this was actually a psalm of David, but that it was written for Asaph to use in corporate worship. So it'd be a debate as to whether it's Asaph or, or, or David who was actually the one experiencing this. But Calvin says, how much profit we may derive from meditation upon the doctrine contained in this psalm. It is easy to discover from the example of the prophet who, although he had been exercised in no ordinary degree in true godliness, yet had great difficulty in keeping his footing while reeling to and fro on the slippery ground on which he found himself placed. Nay, he acknowledges that. Before he returned to such soundness of mind as enabled him to form a just judgment of the things which occasioned his trial, he had fallen into a state of almost brutish stupidity. 
Now, this is the experience when we ask this individual, whether it's Asaph or David, are you happy? He doesn't sound very happy in this moment. Right? And, and happiness, remember, happiness matters to us. Right? You probably have heard the term happy more in the last week than normally, right? You got wished Happy New Year over and over and over again, and you wished other people Happy New Year over and over and over again. So what's that about? It's, it's about you proclaiming to others, I wish for you in the coming year happiness. And that's a good thing. We, we want people to, to feel good about what's going on in their lives, and we want to feel good. And the things, the decisions that we're making and that we're going to make this year in our life, they're very much about investments in happiness, right? We talked last year about if we were all little bitty companies and we were doing business, the business that we would be in would not necessarily just be to increase money in our pockets, but it would be to increase happiness. The bottom line for my business, Keith being in business this year, at the end of the year, I, I, I want to be happy. I want to turn a profit in the happiness category. And we're going to make decisions this year that we hope are going to help us make a profit in, the, in that category. We're going to invest time in some things. We're going to invest time in certain relationships at the expense of other relationships. We're going to get around some people and we're not going to get around some others. We're going to pursue an education. Why do we do that? Why do we go back to school? Why do we go to school? Why do we sacrifice money and time and mental energy in order to get a diploma? Because we think that's going to posture us for a better life. Something that we're going to enjoy and have some happiness with. Relationships. We invest in those to get happiness from them. So we're making decisions about being happy because happiness is where it's at. Barry Ray wrote an article, is everybody happy? He says, happiness, it's what's hot. Everywhere we look, happiness, or at least the promise of it, is a highly sought commodity. From advertising to contemporary economic theory, psychology and psychopharmacology, and of course religion, the search for happiness is the great motivating force of our time. Why then? Aren't we any happier? I don't want to flood you with the stats, but the stats don't help us to conclude that people are actually getting happier. But, but here's what I want to do today. I, 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 want, to put, I want to attach happiness because it's on the run in our lives. It's like a, like a wild dog, right? Just wants to run after this and then run after that and then run after this and run after that. I want to put it on a leash, I want to put it on the leash of wisdom. I want wisdom to be able to pull on happiness when it wants to run off and invest itself in that thing right there or in that way of doing life or in that relationship because it's become convinced that that's where happiness is. But Christians are called to live with wisdom. Wisdom needs to speak to happiness. Happiness doesn't need to just inform us of it wants to run wherever it wants to run because we'll live some foolish lives if we do that. But look at this quote by Barry Ray. He talks about a few categories. I just want to tweeze out a little bit. Advertising. Happiness is, is, a, is a hot commodity in advertising. As a matter of fact, ultimately, if you think through an ad, whether it's a, a car ad uh, a beer ad, the, the Wendy's 
hamburger ads. Ultimately, what are they selling you? They're selling you life improvement, aren't they? They're selling you an upgrade on your life experience. Right? Whatever food you're eating, if you could just have the latest Wendy's concoction, you'd be happy like the redhead in the commercial. Right? <clears throat> or you could just drive this car, if you can just drink this beer, which by the way, and I'm going to sideswipe a bunch of guys in here this morning who do Facebook, so just be prepared. But it, it looks as though some of you have become advertisers for the beer companies. Are you? I mean, you guys get paid when you put their beer in your, in your photos? Because it looks like you are featuring... You can have fun too. Of course, you'll need a beer with you to have fun. But that's the advertisers taught you that. If you want to have fun, if you want to be happy, do these things. So they're not just selling beer, cars. They're selling you happiness. And this is a means to that. You can upgrade and benefit your life. He mentions in here, interestingly, economic theory. Economic theory and governmental ideas are a seedbed for the concept of happiness today. Right? Our founding fathers wrote it into our constitution. I don't know if you've paid attention to this, but happiness is in our founding fathers' documents. It's a major influential part of our founding fathers' documents. Uh, Lockean philosophy is... A description of the thoughts and ideas by a man named John Locke, who was very influential in in the life of thinkers in the time in which the Constitution was being drafted in the Declaration of Independence. He says, the highest perfection of intellectual nature lies in a careful and constant pursuit of true and solid happiness. Locke argued in his two treatises of government that political society existed for the sake of protecting property. Now, he used property in a little different sense than the way in which we use it, which he defined as a person's life, liberty, and estate. Now, interesting, you recognize part of that phrase, don't you? John Locke said this before Thomas Jefferson and his helpers penned the Declaration of Independence. Locke had already influenced people to believe some things about happiness and how it could be attained. How you could go about finding it. And it led some founding fathers to write things like this in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thank you, Mr. Locke. That to secure these rights... Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and Happiness. Right, now you've read that before. You grow up reading the Declaration of Independence. We love the ideas 
that are embodied there. We think the founding fathers did the right thing in forming government. But, but there's, a, there's a little undercurrent here that as a, as a Bible-believing Christian who knows something about a worldview that perhaps the founding fathers knew something and didn't know something about, are, are you buying into the idea that government is responsible for your happiness? Anybody here buying into that idea? Anybody got really, really jazzed up and hacked off about something the government's done lately? Why is that? Why are you so ticked off about what the government does or doesn't do? Well, it, it, it might be because to some degree the air we breathe has convinced us for a couple of hundred years here that governments are instituted for the pursuit of happiness. Now, that's, this has become a real problematic element in a pluralized world. Right? When they wrote this, there was a bunch of people who thought like Bible readers. Pursuing happiness had common definitions. And you've picked that idea up and you said government is formed and instituted for the pursuit of happiness. And then you got a pluralized society where some people believe happiness means running full speed in that direction. And some people believe happiness means running full speed in that direction. And government now is responsible to create highways for you to travel on. Do you see a problem in the future? See, this, this, these little ideas work when everybody sort of, in some ways, to some degree, thought out of the same think tank. People, they don't think out of the same think tank anymore. It just, it's not going to work the way it formerly worked. Plurality of thinking And making the government responsible to further our pursuit of happiness is going to be a never-ending problem. Some of us believe happiness is found in, in living righteously. And some people in this country believe it's found in living licentiously. And they believe the government should aid them in the pursuit of both. So conservative Christians get all up in arms when the laws no longer support marriage as it's defined in the scriptures. But there's another group of people who live in the same land with us who believe that this form of marriage will make me happy. And the government exists in order to help that take place in my life. Do you understand the culture war that we're going to be a part of that's never going to go away? It's going to get worse. But for a Christian... Is there a little bit too much declaration of independence in some of us and not enough Bible in some of us? Are we a little bit too dependent upon the idea that the government really does exist to, to help us pursue happiness? And I'm kind of dependent upon the government for my happiness. So when the government makes bonehead decisions, I get all up in arms because that's messing with my happiness. Isn't that kind of what we do? Right, living example. Ran into somebody I hadn't seen in years. Used to be part of the church years ago. Uh, we bumped into each other, exchanged some, some niceties. How are you? How's your family? How's the kids? Uh, as soon as I lost control of the conversation of asking them about those kinds of things, the question came. So, pastor, what do you think about the government? I hadn't seen this person in years. 
And out, and, and out, of, out of the mouth comes the defining doctrinal blow. What do you think about the government? <laughs> you guys who patiently put up with my preaching know I, I'm, you know, if you're a Fox News hero, uh, I, I don't disagree with the ideas and the angles of logic that they bring. I just think there's too many Christians that tune into it too much. I just think whatever, whatever Obama does next is not nearly, is not nearly, if at all, influential in my pursuit of happiness as much as what Jesus Christ already did for me. But I, listen, but I know Christians are waking up, like tuning in. It's like, I mean, they haven't opened their Bible yet. But man, they want to find out, did that, did that bill pass? Did that thing happen? What, what did the Supreme Court do? What did the, as though, listen, why do we do that? Now, whether you've ever admitted this or not, you are the fruit of the Declaration of Independence. You think your life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness is bound up in whatever the government does next. It's an interesting thing to study governments through history. Because for all the complaining you do, if I could just beam you back Star Trek-wise into the first century, and you could sit under the Roman government, you might think Obama was the best thing you've ever seen in your life. And just because we're ignorant about what, what it was like to live in the Roman Empire. And because Christians at that point had no sense that those guys are happiness brokers. Yeah, the Roman soldiers who drive in and out of town and collect our taxes, if they would just collect less taxes or they would change this, those guys are happiness brokers for us. They had no idea. They did not look to the government that way. But we look to the government that way. It's not a good thing. Right? We need some wisdom in how we live in this world in our pursuit of happiness. Some of us just need to divorce ourselves from the hope that we have that the government's going to make a great move here in the future. And, and like a waterfall, shed, you know, just water's going to come down of happiness all over our lives. Well, you can just give up on that. They might make some right steps, followed by some wrong steps, followed by some more right and wrong steps, or 18 wrong steps in a row. But if you want to fix your happiness, you're going to have to fix your gaze. Because if you're waiting for the government to make you happy, you might as well give up. It's not going to happen. And it never was supposed to happen. Christians weren't supposed to be finding their happiness from their government. All right, here's some wisdom for us. Wisdom putting happiness on a leash. First, wisdom for slippery seasons. Seasons that don't always feel happy, right? Here's reality. Everybody can agree with this. As a Christian, your life doesn't always feel happy, does it? Right? Psalm 73. This, this does not feel like a happy moment for the psalmist. He is describing against the backdrop of God being good, but as for me... That's not how I felt. I was on slippery ground. Things, things in my life were, were aligned in such a way that I was about to slip from that reality that there was goodness in God. Charles Spurgeon says, Remember, beloved, 
speaking of, he believes it's David who's writing Psalm 73. He says, this is a saint of God. This is a highly advanced saint. This is the man after God's own heart. This is one of the special favorites of heaven. One of the men to whom God revealed himself as he doth not unto the world. And yet you hear him telling us his inner life. And he begins by saying, so foolish was I and ignorant. I was a beast before thee. When he starts the psalm here, just look at this collection of conditions where he opens up the reality in his own heart. Listen, just open up the reality of your own heart. Don't don't wear some mask of Christianity. Don't don't espouse some, some lofty ideas that aren't truly being experienced. If we're unhappy people, listen, it's coming out of our lives. Yeah, I, I know you can pull it together and you can put on a nice face for a few minutes gathered on a Sunday morning. But listen, the heavens look on. And the people that we live with look at our lives and engage us. You, you can't fake happiness all that long. So if it doesn't overflow out of you, right? can we stand in line and say, God, something about my life needs to change because I'm not a happy soul. And this man was not a happy soul in Psalm 73. But as for me, I, I was envious. I wasn't happy. I was envious. In vain, I kept my heart clean. And wash my hands in innocence. I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. Seemed to me a wearisome task. My soul was embittered. I was brutish and ignorant. Right? Look at those words. Envious, in vain, stricken, rebuked, weary, embittered, brutish and ignorant. I was not happy. Christian, are you ready for this day in your life? At some point in your life, your pursuit of happiness is going to feel like the most frustrating, ridiculous thing going on in your life because you are not happy. You are not happy at all. This is, this is a man who knew something of God. I don't want us to be ignorant. You know, motivational speakers don't stand up and say this kind of stuff to you because they're trying to motivate you to act a certain way and live a certain way. And, you know, that positive spin element thing that's almost as though, let's just read the Bible. Let's tilt it on its edge and read it positively. Everything's positive. It's not a positive psalm. Not during this season. It's not. Now it ends positive. Thank God that many of the psalms start in a miserable place and end in a great place. But just because you can read this psalm in about two minutes doesn't mean this was a two-minute experience for this man. This was not a two-minute experience. And it won't be for you either. There's coming a day in your life when you're going to be in a slippery place. And you're going you're to have this sense of happiness flowing out of you that you ought to be able to pursue it and experience it in a particular way. That this needs to be informed by the wisdom of Scripture or your wheels are going to come off on that day. How about wisdom? Wisdom to not compare. You want to mess up your happiness? Start comparing your life to the people around you. All right, look in, look in verse 3 here, Psalm 73. It says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs 
until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Apparently that was a compliment back then. You know, <laughs> I'm thinking if I greet you in the fort and I said, Hey, looking fat and sleek, buddy. You're not going to be thanking me for that. (laughs) But apparently fat and sleek was in back here. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice loftily. They threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. In verse 12, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And this is a challenge. Here's a man who lifts up his eyes, finds himself in a bit of a demoralized, less than energetic, unhappy season of his own life. And he does... What should never be done when you start feeling that way. He begins to compare himself with others. And he looks at this one. This one's, it's always going good for that one. How come they've always got, you know, you're, you're driving around and your air conditioner doesn't work. Windows barely go up car and, and up into the parking lot, pull some, you know, smiley face person and they get out of the car. You know, you're kind of doing one of those prop the, the car get up, pick the door up to make it close. They got a new car. They pulled into the parking lot right next to you. And you're looking at them because that's like the third new car you know they've got. And you begin to compare. Why, why do they always, why does that always go well for, how come they never have any problems? Everything seems to go well for them. They don't even, I don't even know if they're believers, right? You begin to compare. It just, it just eats and erodes your sense of happiness. In his article, Is Everybody Happy?, Barry Ray quotes from Darren McMahon, who has written a book on happiness, and he says, It is only relatively recently that human beings have begun to think of happiness as not just an earthly possibility, but also in some ways as an obligation or entitlement, a natural human right. As I try to show in the book, this has had an unintended effect. When we think of happiness as our natural condition, the way we ought to be, then it becomes natural to blame ourselves or others when we are not happy. As if somehow we've been done an injustice or done something wrong ourselves, right? You ever bump into just, just not feeling real happy about things? There's, there's this backup thing. It's like, it's like a meter. It's like a little red light on the dashboard. I'm unhappy, dude, something is wrong. Someone is wrong. I did something wrong. Right? Is that in you? Right? You're trying to you're trying to troubleshoot your unhappiness. I think this has created a new and very modern pressure, even a new type of unhappiness. I call it the unhappiness of not being happy. <laughs> Don't you just love that? As though there's not enough things to tr- struggle with. All you have to do is open a magazine. Or turn on the television and you are bombarded with pictures of apparently happy people smiling away. If you don't feel the same way and most people don't most of the time, this can be kind of a downer. Our expectations of happiness have been raised enormously, perhaps too high. 
in modern society, we demand not only the right to pursue happiness, but expect its attainment as well. Question. Who have you blamed for your lack of happiness? Who have you blamed? People in your life. Right, there is this expectation that's built into us that we're supposed to be happy. Now, happiness doesn't have a definition. It's just a concept. So last week we tried to give it a little fuller definition. But here, here I think, is, is what we do. This is our tendency. If there's a, a, a pie called happiness and we're living life, we take that pie and we cut it up into pieces and we give that pie to people, pieces of it. We expect to get some happiness back. So, you know, you start off in your life, there's parents in your life, so you, you give a piece of the pie to parents. You expect to get happiness back. At some point, you, you get married and, you know, significant relationship, you give a bigger piece of the pie to your spouse. You expect to get happiness back. And then you start having children, you cut off another piece, and you, you give that to them. And then probably you have a job, you know, I'm a pastor, so I'm part of a church. And so I cut a piece of the pie and I give it to you as the, the church, as a source of my happiness. And, and then when I'm done, I've got this little maybe 10% slice that I take ownership of. And, you know, so I'm, I'm expecting to work out my own happiness with that 10% thing. But I've invested the hope of happiness in a bunch of people in my life. And if I'm reading my declaration correctly, I have certain inalienable rights to happiness. So do you understand why I expect something from you? I expect you to enable my search for happiness. Now, my wife's got a lot of weight to carry in that because big slice of the pie given to her. So I'm looking for her to provide all kinds of happiness in my life and my kids have got a big piece of the pie, right? They've got to figure out what buttons on dad to push, how to live, what to do to make sure dad experiences happiness, right? I don't know whether you feel the pressure or not, but when you walk in here, it's a little pressure on you because you guys own a little piece of my happiness. So I hope you came in this morning prepared to make me happy. Please laugh at my jokes. Please uh, affirm my message afterwards. Please come back next week. Uh, all those things that just kind of help, help me to create happiness, a sense of well-being. I feel good about my life when you do all those things for me. And I feel good about my wife. And my, well, what happens the day that people, for whatever reason in their life, they're villains, they're too busy, they just don't like you, whatever. They just stop depositing the return in you. Your investment goes sour. You stop getting your happiness rebate from them on a regular basis. You see what this, this does in our lives. See, where did this idea come from anyway? Right? Well, it's all over. It's all around us. We have these ideas about where we're going to find and pursue and create happiness in our lives. You know, should, and when I read the Bible, there, there's this, giant player in the Bible. He's an enormous player in the Bible. 
He, he casts a shadow over time in everything that exists. He makes everything small. He paints brushstrokes of eternity. You and I go through seasons of difficulty. Right? It's eternity that makes you realize these momentary light afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. But you've got to do the comparison, right? So you have this person called God. He's in Psalm 73, and we'll get to him next week. This person called God who's enormous. And you've got all these little bitty people in your life called spouses and children and co-workers and parents. And they're little bitty people. But when you lose sight and you stop gazing on a great big God, those little bitty people become very, very big and necessary people. And there's a lot of pressure on them because you've invested your hope of happiness in how happy they can make you. Does this sound like the Bible to anybody? There's a dominating character in this Bible. He is so big, he can swallow your life up. He can step into the realm of whatever it was that your parents were not to you. And he can be abundantly more than you'll ever need him to be. He can step into your dysfunctional marriage and be something in your life that that spouse is not being in your life that can swallow your life up. See, this is why the happiness described in the Bible is is a strange thing because you'll find this joy unspeakable and full of glory is written to people who are having their property seized and their relatives are being killed. And they don't know how many days they've got left either. And by the way, and the government's the one killing them. But there's something in their life that's bigger than that. And and the joy of that has swallowed them up. See, that's, that's how the Bible gives us a sense of our well-being. There's another little element going on here, and I have to suspect, and I could be a little bit historically off here, so put up with me, but I have to suspect that either David or Asaph, whoever the psalmist is, has a Facebook account. I'm I'm just wondering. You know, he doesn't have to actually go out and observe any of these people. All their self portrayed publishing comes to him. So he's living in his own house, thumbing through the fat, sleek people. Why don't y'all put that on your next Facebook thing? Hey, looking fat and sleek (laughs) on there. Well, interesting. My daughter knows how much I love Facebook. So she forwarded this tweet to me that she came across. Facebook causes you to overestimate how happy your friends are and in turn makes you more depressed. (laughs) Ever thought about that? Well, here's an article that was in The Economist magazine or or Facebook or web page. Title of it is Facebook is bad for you. Get a life. (laughs) Uh, It has some intelligence in it, so we'll read it anyway. It says, a study just published by the Public Library of Science conducted by Ethan Cross of the University of Michigan and Philippe Verdouin of Leuven University in Belgium has shown that the more someone uses Facebook, the less satisfied he is with life. Past investigations have found that using Facebook is associated with jealousy, social tension, isolation, and depression. 
their study does not tease out why socializing on Facebook has a different effect from socializing in person. But an earlier investigation conducted by social scientists at Humboldt University and Darmstadt's Technical University, both in Germany, may have found the root cause. They found that the most common emotion aroused by using Facebook is envy. Endlessly comparing themselves with peers who have doctored their photographs, amplified their achievements, and plagiarized their bon mots, their good words, can leave Facebook's users more than a little green-eyed. Real-life encounters, by contrast, are more what you see is what you get. Right, when, you, when you go live with people, this is why people don't want to go live, by the way. When you go live with people, you, you lose all your editing ability. You know, you're just, you're just there and, you know, a comment was made and, and you thought you could say something funny, but you're not funny. You're only funny if you've got 24 hours to think about responding to that tweet. Then all of a sudden you become funny. So you've got to avoid those settings. And so you just kind of retreat and do business on your own terms. You see something, you wait. You know, you post something else in comparison and association with it. Listen, if, if you're struggling in the happiness category, don't, don't make this mistake. I know I'm, I'm famous for picking on Facebook, and a lot of you are probably starting to dismiss me as being out of touch in that category. But, but don't dismiss this. You have to manage yourself, which means you have to know yourself. Is Facebook a good setting for you? For some people, it probably is. Some people don't live in that hyper-comparison mode. Some people can look at the achievements and activities and things are going well for others and can simply rejoice in what they see, can find pleasure in the sense of God's blessing being upon them. They have the ability to interpret that this is a highlight reel. It's not all reality. They can do that. They have the self-control to do that. Some people do not. So they get on and they look at Facebook and it's like, it's, you know, it's like watching the sportscast in the evening. You know, 30 seconds, watch the sportscast. In 30 seconds, 17 touchdowns were scored. So you turn on a football game and you start watching. 30 seconds goes by, they haven't even gotten the first down yet. I mean, real life is boring. I'm sorry. But you watch other people's highlight reels and you watch them highlight and highlight and highlight and you go to the next person and highlight and highlight and highlight and then you look at your own life and you are bored with you. Because you probably shouldn't be looking at all that. Because you don't know yourself well enough. Now, listen, maybe you're one of those people that's like, hey, you know, I don't know. You know, I just, I just like to do it, whatever. Listen, we'll... we'll People have to live with the sense of misery that creates for you. Right? When your world doesn't compare well with somebody else's world and you close your little Facebook feed and you walk away from that and you're irritated. And, and then the people in your life have to interact with you. And you're irritated with them. Right? For no other reason. Can, can you wise up to that and realize I don't know if God intended for us to stare at this many personal news feeds. I don't know if that was ever a healthy idea. Because in us, by nature, is comparison. 
we just want to compare with others. It's one thing to pull up a news feed about some abstract individual in Canada. It's another thing to pull up a peer and look at their life, look at their money, look at what they spent, look at where they got to go. And then you compare yourself. How am I doing? Do we get to travel like that? Do we have that kind of stuff in our lives? Does our families get together and take those kinds of pictures? No, our family's all at odds with each other. We hate each other. But this is, this is what's in you. Now, you know, what you don't recognize is they got everybody to smile for 30 seconds. And then they bludgeoned each other right after the picture. Right now, you, you're, you know that's true. But when you're looking at it and it's feeding you, you know, can everybody just learn yourself? If, if you have problems with comparison, be wise about what you do. Don't get your life around things that you chronically compare yourself to so that you can become miserable. Because your, your misery makes a statement about God. Ultimately, the well-being in my life is an advertisement for who God is to me. And if I'm miserable to be around, that's an advertisement too. I'm not going to have anybody running hard after God. I'm miserable. Who the heck wants a God like I've got? So be careful how you live in that. Last category. Wisdom to find happiness in a fallen world. This is a, this is a fallen world. Your happiness is going to be experienced in its setting. Biblical wisdom tells us we live in a fallen world that is infested by sin and brokenness. It informs us that this existence is temporary and this realm is destined for judgment. And the pressing of a giant reset button where it will give way to another existence. Whatever it is that you're building, whatever it is that you're after... Realize whatever you build in this world, it's got an expiration date on it. It's going to go away. It may even break in your life before you get to the end of your life. But if it doesn't and it outlives you, you will be parted with it. It is temporary. It is temporary at best. It will give way to eternal things. And as a matter of fact, the whole world has a date with judgment. I'm going to keep that in mind. When this looks really fun and pleasurable, but that has a date with judgment. That's reality. But this makes me happy. Really? Are you really going to be smiling when judgment falls in that location and you're standing there? You can still be happy about that? I don't think I want your definition for happy. If you can live in that, knowing that the God of glory is going to judge that. And you've somehow created that as an address where you want to spend time. I don't, I don't want your happiness if that's where you are. And you shouldn't want it either. Because that's, that's not why, wisdom-informed happiness. That's a foolish pursuit of happiness. I found a foolish pursuit of happiness this week. So I was listening to Spotify. Any guys listen to Spotify or Pandora, one of those listening things on the web? Did, did I get an image of this? No, Eric was trying to get me an image of this. I don't know if he managed to get it up in the thing here. Well, it wasn't Psalm 62, I can guarantee you that. Spotify creates playlists, so you can, and they advertise their playlists. It's a list of songs that you can listen to and engage. And there was a particular playlist that came up, and this was it. Here's the image. Well-tattooed young lady 
informal is now normal. That's kind of thought-provoking, isn't it? Informal is now normal. Be yourself. Be free. Be comfortable. Be fun. Be happy. All right. Now, you know, I'm a young person. I'm dialing into Spotify. I kind of like the edginess. This girl has decided to do it her way. She's got, she's got tattoos and she, you know, she's, she's in the mode of doing something here. And, and, and informal is now normal. And here's a great slogan. Now, I just want to ask you some questions. I think I put these questions in your outline. Be yourself. Okay, really? Does being yourself lead to happiness? Because it does at the end of this sentence. Be yourself. It'll lead you to happiness. I've watched a lot of people be themselves. It seems to lead to uh, fractured relationships. It leads to divorce. Why do people get divorced? I'll just be in myself and my spouse didn't care for myself. (laughs) And she was being herself and I didn't care for her. Be yourself leads to happiness. I bet for some of us here, being ourself led us to losing our job. Did you get fired from a job? You were just being yourself. Well, the problem with being yourself is you were late, lazy, uh, uninterested in following directions. And it was a good job. And it would have paid you well and given you some form of a future and it had good benefits to it. And now what do you got? A job you can't stand. But the problem was you couldn't keep this job because you were just busy being yourself. This is a great slogan, isn't it? Just be yourself. Don't just be yourself. Be free. Be free. All right, this is where, let's not be biblical idiots. I throw out the concept, be free. Be free. Just let me just announce to the world. Be free. Free from what? Free from, I don't know, free from responsibility. We explored that last week. Does, does living a, a life with no responsibility really produce happiness? Oh, yeah, it produces the, the weight of responsibility is gone. But are you really going to be happy 10 years from now as you look back on nothing that you did? See, because you just don't have the ability to look forward and to live right now. You have the ability to look back. You think you're going to be real happy with nothing in your life. Or maybe be free means uh, free from obligation or free from self-sacrifice, from inconvenience, from restraint. Right? I just want to be free. So I get married, but I don't want to restrain myself. So therefore, I just keep having affairs. Really, that, that, that's a recipe for happiness. You know, a lot of people really happy living that kind of a life. Just be unrestrained. Be free. Spend and spend and spend. You ever met some people severely in debt? They're really, really happy. I mean, they were free. They were free to spend money they didn't have over and over and over again. See, these are, these are, these are stupid slogans. And when you read your Bible, you should come armed. You should have seen that. I mean, I see ads like this and they make my skin crawl. Does, this, does it do it for you like that? Drive down the highway, you see a billboard that is so unwise and uninformed that you just want to stare at that and go, that is stupid. 
But at the end of the, of the promise is you can be happy. Really. Be free. That'll, that'll make me happy. Do you understand that the Bible says there's, there's nothing free in this world? Nothing is free. I don't mean free like you have to pay for it. I mean free like liberated free. The Bible says this, and every Christian should know this. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Only there. Everywhere else, the Bible teaches there's enslavement and bondage. To what? To sin. To sin that sells pleasure. To sin that sells selfishness. To sin that that strokes your pride. So here, this is an advertisement for go ahead and take your sin off the leash. Just let it roam. Be free. Don't restrain it. Just go ahead and you be you. Whatever form of you comes popping out, go right ahead. Okay, as a Christian, something should scream at you. That's that's not going to be a happy moment for me or anybody else. That's going to be a sinfully destructive life of deep regret if I take sin off of its leash. Is happiness found only in doing things you find comfortable? Be comfortable. Be comfortable. Really? Really? How many of you would have ever known the joy of sharing the gospel with another human being if your priority was to be comfortable? You'd have just kept that to yourself, right? And it was awkward and it was challenging. And you didn't know what words to use and you didn't know how to bring up the conversation. But when you shared the gospel, there was a joy in your life as a result. When that person responded and came to Christ and their whole world was altered and changed, there was a joy and a sense of happiness in your existence that you would not have had. If I'd have taken this advice, be comfortable, I'd have never been a pastor. Never. Ain't no way I'd stand in this moment and let all of you stare at me and wait for me to say something next. Everything that's wired in me said, don't do that. You're an idiot. So to be comfortable would have said, avoid these settings at all cost. There's lots of things that God has for your life that if be comfortable is your motto, you're not going to experience. And if you're not going to experience the life God has for you, here's my promise to you. You will not be happy. Christians should be armed with this. Now let me close with this thought because in this passage, He's going to have a real eye-opening moment here. Verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken, rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until... I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Then all of a sudden, I lifted my eyes from their moment of sleek fatness. And I just looked down the road a little bit from where they are right now. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms.
See, at, at some point, temporary pleasure has got to give way to what is going to be eternal. You want to experience happiness. You can't stare at something with a 30-second payoff. And in light of eternity, it's more like a 30th of a millisecond of payoff of pleasure. Can I sell anybody happiness that lasts for a, a 30th of a millisecond? Is there anything I could sell you that lasts that long? See, in light of eternity, all these folks who seem to be just living it up and doing it their way and experiencing what they want, they have a date with judgment. That date informs my pursuit today. Right? I, I, I need a wise definition of happiness. You are living your life today. You are making adjustments for 2014. You have lifted your eyes up and potentially you have gazed upon people who have a date with judgment and you have said, I want their life. Are you sure that's the happiness that you want? Or might God have a different experience of happiness awaiting you? Let's, let's stand up together. Father, we are... We are gathered here as young and old, men and women, children, adults, senior citizens and teenagers. But what we all have in common is in the next week, in the next month, in the next year, we would like an upgrade in our happiness. We would like for our life and our sense of well-being, our sense of pleasure and enjoyment, we would like that to increase. Lord, I pray. I pray today, Lord, you have informed our pursuit of happiness with wisdom. Or that we have not substituted ideas that truly never will provide for us the happiness that we're after. Lord, may our definition as the people of God be a wisely informed and discerning definition for happiness. Lord, would you rescue us from being vulnerable to the Spotify ads that clutter our lives? Offer us something that we know if we've just read our Bible a little bit, we know that ain't going to work out that way. Lord, at some point, would you draw our attention to the God who speaks about our well-being, the God who cares about our well-being, the God who speaks of joy and making our joy full, the God who sent his son to restore us to yourself because your desire was that our joy would be full. Lord, would you remind us that you are more interested in our well-being and our happiness than we are interested. You and your infinite love, how could it not be? Lord, as we look next week at this 
psalmist who turns the corner from this season of misery. Lord, even as we've read just now, and he begins to see life through a lens bigger than the temporary pleasures of a moment. Lord, would you help us to see more than American noisy temporary pleasures? Lord, give us an ability to live for more than this weekend. Lord, give us an ability to look past the in crowd who's out with you and we're trying to be in with them as though they're going to provide life for us. Lord, reel us in as we've divvied up the pie of happiness and distributed it to people in our lives. And now we're, we're, we want to take them to court and demand something from them. Lord, Lord that's, not, that's not how you've designed happiness for our lives. So Lord, I pray that wisdom would rescue us from stupid. And we would be a people living in a fallen world, wisely informed by your word, empowered by your spirit to know and experience happiness. That's real here and it will be real for all of eternity. Lord, let our 2014 be an encounter with that. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Y'all have a great week.